After 102 days, we have our first cases of COVID-19 outside of a managed isolation or quarantine facility in New Zealand. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Welcome, this is Tick Tick for Wednesday the 12th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Tēnā koutou katoa. Now, normally this is the bit where I'd say, this is Stuff's 2020 election podcast, three episodes a week, bringing you the news, some of the more unusual things about the campaign, blah, 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 blah. But as you may have heard last night, a little after 9pm... Or maybe this morning at 5 to 7 when your phone exploded into action with a loud klaxon sound and a great big message from the government. Yeah, all that. Anyway, as you've no doubt learnt, there's been community transmission of COVID-19 in New Zealand for the first time in more than 100 days. And while it's something health officials have been warning about for months, it's still a shock, right? Auckland is now back in level 3 for a few days at least, and the rest of the country back in level 2. So... For now, that means Eugene and I are sort of going back to the future. Long-time listeners will know that until a couple of weeks ago, this podcast was called Coronavirus NZ and was all about the COVID. Then we changed the name to Tick Tick because we wanted to focus on the upcoming general election. But today, after the shock of last night's announcement from the Prime Minister, we're basically going to mash things up. A bit of coronavirus, a bit of election 2020, and if it's not weird, a little bit of lockdown nostalgia. There are 38 days till the election. Well, probably 38 days. At this point, even the election may be up for grabs. We'll see. So, Eugene, where were you when New Zealand got the bad news? I'd literally just walked in the door from a residents and ratepayers association meeting. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I happened to look at Twitter, saw a tweet about a press conference, yelled out to the family, and we all turned on the tally... I got the Stuff Live blog up on my phone and, yeah, we watched. Yeah, I saw a news alert on my phone and basically ran to my laptop, hooked into Stuff for the live feed, opened another page to RNZ just in case something went wrong with the Stuff feed, which it didn't, I should add. Jumped on Twitter to, you know, read the hot takes and the lukewarm takes and sat there basically drumming my fingers till Ardern and Bloomfield stepped onto the screen looking, looking sombre. Yeah, and it was anxious, wasn't it? They said it was going to be 9.15 and then 9.15 ticked by a little bit. It was like, oh, what's going on? It's because you don't call an evening press conference in the middle of a global pandemic with 15 minutes notice to announce good news. The funny thing, though, I noticed that Ardoon and Bloomfield's podiums, podia, podiums on the theatrette stage hadn't got the memo. They were really close to each other. No social distancing going on there. Yeah, that's right, actually. Though I noticed that by the time of this morning's 10.30 update, They've been pulled apart again. Anyway, the PM and the DG of Health said their bit. The journalists asked a few questions, and then I sat there kind of staring at my laptop, basically thinking, oh God, here we go again. What about you? Well, I checked in on family. My sister and I badgered mum into staying home. I worried about a nurse friend who I thought, oh gosh, here he goes off into the front line once more. You know, it was pretty anxious times. I think these calls prove that as we already know, um, you're a much more thoughtful person than me. While you were worrying about people's well-being, I was thinking about shoreback yeast, actually. I, I got some <laughs> intel from an associate of mine who'd happened to pop into Countdown for very legitimate reasons to buy some urgently needed coffee beans, quite coincidentally, and then she'd been confronted with a heaving mass of humans filling the aisles <laughs> of Countdown at quarter to ten on a Wednesday. Hmm. So despite half a year of clear evidence... 
that there really is zero need to panic buy food in New Zealand when there's a pandemic on. It seems that half Auckland were doing precisely that. WTF. Exactly. It does look kind of dumb, but, you know, it's only human and people were scared and worried and I guess the old hunter-gatherer gene kicks in. Well, that's that's very big of you. Again, more proof that you're a nicer person than me. I, I just thought, idiots. And there were all those other pictures and videos that people were posting. So there was a bit of irony about that because obviously there were people saying, yeah. look at all these people yeah. <laughs> at a supermarket oh, no. uh, queuing. I took this um, uh, from in the queue at the supermarket <laughs> where I was queuing. But anyway, hypocrisy aside, um, I was watching, I was thinking, you're all idiots. And I was also dreaming up a curse, something like, all you people who don't even like baking, who bought up all the flour and all the yeast last time, May your whole meal be infested with weevils and your scones fail to rise. Then I basically sat on Twitter for an hour or two, just sort of soaking it all up. I even learnt a new word for what I was doing. Apparently, it's doom scrolling, which is, kind of makes sense. Um, there's one tweet that I thought probably captured the collective mood of New Zealand. This was quite late in the evening. Someone wrote, can't sleep, too COVID. There's one other thing, though. Sure, there was doom, but in my Twitter bubble, at least... There was also this really quite moving outpouring of warmth and support. There's lots of kiakahas and we can do this again, New Zealand, and lots of people saying, hey, just breathe, you know, all that sort of stuff. I don't see a live, laugh, love, but there was probably one somewhere. It just kind of reminds me of that, of that lockdown vibe of people, you know, trying to be kind to each other. Also, and sorry, Eugene, I know I promised I wouldn't quote lots of tweets at you, but there was one tweet from the little-known political podcaster Toby Manhire, which I thought was too good to overlook. He rather elegantly repurposed Labour's slogan for lockdown part two, let's not keep moving. Hmm, very good. It sounds like I didn't spend as much time on Twitter as you did. I did have a few things to sort out before bedtime. As you know, there's another podcast I do, a running one, Church Radio, by the way, if you want to listen to. We it's all... very good, everyone. Yeah, there you go. We had an episode all ready to drop for this morning, Wednesday, and one section of that was a preview of a big race starting in Auckland on Friday, the Riverhead Backyard Relapse, which, of course, is now off. Uh, for now, at least, the second time it's been called off. Um, so I had to jump onto my laptop and hack those bits out and drop in a new intro and things. And that's what everyone's having to do, isn't it? This, this great unwinding of all the plans we've been making after this, you know, rather golden period where we have been able to make plans. So it's, um, I don't know, it's the real life cancel culture, isn't it? Schools, business, work trips, social gatherings, you know, and even if it's only for three days, which is, you know, it's a best case scenario, it's amazing how much stuff you have to shut down when there's a pandemic in town. Yeah. And then at quarter past 10, as I was sitting there, I got this civil defence emergency alert thing on my phone. Oh, lucky you. Mine didn't even arrive till this morning, which was just in time to drag me from the middle of a quite pleasant dream, actually. Yeah, everyone was having those, I don't have to be in the office, sleep-ins, weren't they? I got that one too. Apparently, when the message was sent out last night, there was a problem with the Vodafone network, and a lot of people, like you, didn't get it, which is why it had to be resent this morning. Oh, I see. Anyway, so here we are. We're both in Auckland, back in our bedroom studios. We've been in level three since noon. So I went for a longer run than usual this morning because I figured it might be a bit of an anxious day and I needed lots of good endorphins to get me through the day. Spot any teddy bears out and about? I knew there was something missing. It's not a real lockdown until there's teddy bears. Anyway, later in the show, well, as we said, this is a bit of a TikTok coronavirus NZ mashup. TikTok or TikTok? <laughs> exactly. And it's coronavirus NZ mashup. TikTok, TikTok. Look, it's... It's a difficult day. So we're going to be covering what this all means for politics and the election and even 
Parliament by talking to Stuff's political editor, Luke Malpass. Then we'll move on to the virus and the lockdown itself. We're going to remind ourselves all those fiddly details, what level three means, level two, all that. And then our feature interview is with Dr. Sean Hendy, who we had on the show, well, that's the old show, as it were, back in June. And back then, he was talking about the risks of New Zealand suffering a second wave of COVID. So it seemed kind of relevant to get him back on. But first, Eugene, what on earth is going on? Well, where do we start? Let's cover the basics first. There are four new cases of COVID-19 that have been discovered in one family in South Auckland. And the important thing about them is this. As of yet, we don't know how they came into contact with the virus. As a result, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Director of Health Dr Ashley Bloomfield resumed their Beehive Theatre Double Act and they announced that Auckland was going back into Level 3 lockdown and the rest of the country was going into Level 2. At this stage, that's till midnight Friday, but it's really a case of watch this space, isn't it? The family, by the way, they're in isolation. They don't need hospital-level care, which is great. It's emerged that some members of the family, including two who tested positive, had been to Rotorua at the weekend. The other development is that there are four probable cases connected to the outbreak. Two of those are workmates of one of the cases, and two others are from what's described as a related household that one of the cases stayed at. And they are being tested, those four people are being tested, and they're waiting for those results to come back. The dissolution of Parliament has been delayed. That's a formal action which kicks off the process that leads to the election. But so far, Ardern says, look, we haven't delayed the election as such. It's still scheduled for September the 19th. But delaying this formal process, which was meant to take place today, Wednesday, until Monday, means more options remain in play. So we'll talk about this a bit more with Luke. Businesses which were beginning to shakily get back on their feet are gutted by last night's news, of course. Both Air New Zealand and Auckland Airport shares took a dive on the stock exchange this morning. And smaller businesses, well, they're coming to terms with having to go back to business as unusual with the associated costs and the drop in income it brings. Meanwhile, Finance Minister Grant Robertson has met with Treasury officials to consider a regional-only extension of the wage subsidy for Auckland businesses if Level 3 has to continue. So just when we were getting used to the new normal, the old new normal has come along again to haunt us. eh? Still, because of the rapidly changing nature of what we know about this virus, some of the things that were accepted before have changed. One of the most important of those is masks. We talked about masks quite a bit during Coronavirus NZ as the advice shifted and changed, certainly globally. Initially, people like Dr. Michael Baker of Otago University and a few others were like lone voices in New Zealand saying, hey, we're mask people. The official advice from Dr. Bloomfield was, nope, we don't agree. Then other countries started to adopt compulsory mask policies. The official advice was still no. The World Health Organization then changed its position on masks. The official advice was still no. Then last week, the official advice in New Zealand changed. And you'll recall Health Minister Chris Hipkins advising everyone to go out and stock up on masks. Not necessarily for wearing right then when there was no community transmission, but just so that people were ready to roll if, heaven forbid, community transmission ever returns. So today, come the ramping up of alert levels, it's time to dig out those masks from the emergency stash, if you've had the time and resources to buy them and put them on. The official advice in Auckland is a strong recommendation to wear them. The only place they're actually compulsory is on airline flights out of Auckland, so masks are being handed out on those planes. The government has released 5 million of them from the national stockpile to make sure critical workers have them, and they're looking at putting them into food parcels as well. And just so we're clear, people, let's not go down the path other countries have by making masks a 
rallying cry for personal freedom or whatever. How about we all agree right now we're going to wear masks when we're out and about and unable to social distance and we're not going to make it a thing. Yeah, it was interesting and good to note that national leader Judith Collins said on RNZ this morning that she was wearing a mask, which hopefully means masks won't become a political football as they have in other countries. Speaking of Judith Collins, I hear there's an election on soon. Apparently. And of course, this community transmission development is immediately having a far-reaching impact on the campaign and on parliament and on politics more generally. So to discuss all that, we're joined by Stuff political editor Luke Melpass from Wellington. G'day Luke, safely tucked up there in your level two land in Wellington with your restaurants and your cafes? Oh well, uh, you know, we, we try down here. It must be a bit rough being up in Auckland at the moment. Yeah. The inside of my bedroom looks the same no matter what level we're under. <laughs> hey, let's just talk about some of those logistics. The, the dissolution has been delayed. Uh, there's been calls most loudly from Judith Collins for the election to be delayed. Is that even possible? Yes, so uh, Parliament was meant to be dissolved today. Uh, That has been put off. And now Judith Collins came out this afternoon and said, well, she thinks, and as did David Seymour, she thinks the election should be delayed uh, because voters aren't going to get a fair shake. Uh, We could be in lockdown for quite a while. Uh, Yes, it is possible. Or... Uh, Parliament can be recalled, because it hasn't been dissolved now, Uh, Parliament can be recalled and it can vote with a supermajority, which is 75%, in favour of having the election, say, early next year. And Judith Collins this afternoon said that was actually her preference, which is, uh, when you think about the sweep of elections, uh, oppositions tend to want to go to elections as soon as possible, rather than than pushing them out six months. Hey, and and what about the politics? What are you observing? Who's doing it well? Uh, Well... (sighs) I think this will be the first time uh, since the pandemic has broken out where really you have you are you you are going to have a really combative opposition on this rhetorically at least. I mean Judith Collins essentially came out today and said, "Well, there's not enough transparency, and you're not giving you're, you're not giving the opposition a fair shake, and we don't know anything, and nowhere near enough, and we want the government to give us a lot more information." Uh, and we want voted voters should be able to know because you're just locking down the economy. Whereas the Prime Minister is very much leaning back into um, uh, what I called in a column the um, COVID-19 greatest hits. You know, it's uh, it's unity, it's the team of five million, um, and if we all just stick to the plan and get into it together, um, then we'll be all right. And uh, interestingly, this afternoon, clearly provoked a bit by uh, Ms Collins, the Prime Minister said, well, look, um, the opposition should be showing some unity and effectively being quiet in not playing politics with this um, until after the immediate uh, problem has solved. So that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's say, a marked change. But do you think Judith Collins has actually got a point? Has there been enough transparency? Is there evidence of that one way or the other? We don't know. We don't know an awful lot. I mean... I, th- I think the interesting point is around whether the level three lockdown is using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And I think that that question will be asked a lot more honestly after the election. The whole New Zealand public has great pride in, uh, rightly so, has pride in the fact that uh, New Zealand eliminated COVID. But when you're, you've eliminated it and no one else has, of course, the pressure to keep it there is incredible and long-term may not actually be particularly feasible. And so I think that um, no one is, no political party is going to be particularly honest with that, 
question before the election. It would be an appalling situation if New Zealand just faced, you know, rolling sort of lockdowns as as little things uh, showed up. And But before the election, I mean, everyone basically is in favour of elimination. And that is also uh, coincidentally where the public is at, and quite understandably and quite reasonably so. Hey, just finally, what, what are you picking? Will there be an election on September 19, do you reckon? No, I don't think so. Wow. I, th- I, think it'll, I think it'll be pushed back. It's pretty significant when you have, I mean, if you think about New Zealand's democracy, where elections are held, how they're held, tends to just, it's just managed by the Electoral Commission and there isn't really much debate over it. Um, the fact that there is now a question, I mean, um, Judith Collins was almost raising the question of a le- the legitimacy of a, um, I don't think she would use that word exactly, but that was definitely what she was getting at, the legitimacy of, say, having a postal vote or having an election in the midst of some new sort of lockdown. And I think that it would be unhealthy for New Zealand's democracy uh, when when essentially, um, you know, one major part, one side of politics thinks that it's, it's illegitimate. That wouldn't be healthy for anyone. Is there a scenario if on um, tomorrow's, say, Somebody comes in waving a piece of paper saying, we have found every single contact, it's done, level three's off, phew, it's fine. Can you see the election coming back on then or is, is, has the situation changed for good? Oh, you can see. I, I think the, I think the government would push for it to do it at that date if uh, if if that if that was what happened. Um, but I think that's I think that's probably a pretty unlikely scenario. Right. Yeah. We better let you get back to it. Thanks so much, Luke Malpass. Thanks, guys. Just so things are really clear, we thought we'd remind ourselves of all the new rules that kicked in at midday today. For starters, the boundaries. So level three is Auckland, Tamaki Makaurau. And by that, the government means the outline of the super city from Pukekohe in the south to Wellsford in the north. I was wondering if the people of Kaiwaka just north of Wellsford on State Highway 1 were at the border this afternoon going, hee hee. Well, they've already got cheaper petrol, haven't they? So they're probably feeling really smug. Mm, probably are. And what does level three mean again, Adam? Non-essential businesses have to close, restaurants can sell takeaways only, places that only did takeaways in the first place can carry on much as usual, mass gatherings are cancelled, schools are closed to all but children of essential workers. Basically, go home, stay home. Oh, I see what you did there. That was the episode title of the very first episode of Coronavirus NZ, if I recall correctly. Anyway, bubble life is back, folks. Okay, and level two, that's for the rest of you outside of Auckland. What's that again? It means the return of the three S's rule. For restaurants and cafes. You mean the four S's? No, it's three. Seated, separated, and single server. See? That's four S's. Pedant. Anyway, yes, that. For cafes and restaurants. Apart from that, gatherings are restricted to 100 people, the two-metre rule applies, and schools can open. Oh, and the advice is slightly different from the last time Level 2 existed. Now it's wear a mask whenever you go anywhere where physical distancing is not possible. So that's on public transport and shops, that kind of thing. Yeah, so those are the basics. Remember, you can go to the covid19.govt.nz website for more details and for you to see that there are indeed four S's. I was burbling earlier about how it felt last night after that press conference. It was this weird mix of, oh no, not again, Groundhog Day-ness, but also nostalgia. You know, Bloomfield is reminding us again to wash our hands for 20 seconds. And there was the, the strangely familiar feeling of, getting ready to hunker down with family at home with all the pros and cons that come with that. So, in the spirit of nostalgia and of history repeating itself, it only seemed right to bring the Coronavirus NZ Plague playlist out of retirement too. 
Yes. So we had a quick look through the back catalogue to find the right piece. It had to be something special. It had to be something positive and uplifting, but also musically rich. It had to have gravitas and really kind of came down to one possibility only, and it was this. Baked potato changed my life. Baked potato showed me the way. If you want to know what is wrong from right, you must listen to what potatoes say. Wash your hands and stay indoors. Thank you, baked potato. Only go to... Thank you, Matt Lucas, for thank you, baked potato. Indeed. Right, on with the show. Like we said earlier, our feature interview today is with Professor Sean Hendy from Auckland University, who leads the research and data modelling group Te Punaha Matatini. So from the moment the pandemic began, pretty much, Te Punaha Matatini was modelling scenarios for infection rates and virus transmission and deaths in New Zealand. Their models were central to the development of government policies back in March, and they're going to be really important again as we go through this new crisis. We talked to Sean about the chances of a second wave back in June. So today's interview is a bit of a follow-up from that, really. So let's go. Kia ora, Sean. Kia ora. So first of all, it was a bit of a JFK moment, wasn't it? So where were you when you, you found out about these latest cases and how did it make you feel? I was, I was actually um, having dinner with Juliet Gerard, who's the Prime oh. Minister's Chief Science Advisor. Yeah. <laughs> so um, That's one Zoom call circumvented straight away, right? There. Abs- absolutely, but also a risky, a risky meeting, <laughs> right, face-to-face. And so our phones started going. We had a request to, to start doing some modelling. I mean, we've kind of been doing the prep work for this um, over the last few months. So, you know, I think first thoughts was, you know, is this a drill? Mm. <laughs> um, you know, are they just putting us through our paces because we've been talking about doing something like that? And so I had to get in touch with some of my my team members. Um, and then I think people, customers in the restaurant were probably slightly unnerved when our laptops <laughs> came out. And and yeah, so that was yeah, kind of a sink, sinking feeling. Yeah. And uh, the the <laughs> the wine drinking had to cease at that point too. So I bet it did. yeah, so it was yeah. N- not not the greatest evening. But uh, you know, on the other hand, being being with someone who was also connected, that was you know that was quite quite good, as you say. Saved saved a Zoom call and sort of made us both, um, energised us both. Yeah. So as far as Tapunaha Matatini is concerned, what, what had to be cranked up and, and what, are you, what are you doing? Yeah, so, so the first thing we've been looking at is just, you know, this kind of scenario where, you know, we, we assume that, that, okay, something's made it through our quarantine um, process and, you know, we know that you, you just, you cannot make the quarantine process completely watertight. It's just not how this disease works, you know, without being completely onerous and, um, and not allowing people in. Um, so we've been working on the assumption that at some point in the next you know, year or so, we might have a, a leak through quarantine. And then the, the key thing for us is, well, when do you detect it? When do you see, do you, do you actually detect it in the, in the worker? Do you see it in a close context of a worker? Or worst case is, you know, do you see it pop up in the community and you're not sure about the, the context um, to that worker? And so, you, you know, you want to sort of get a handle then on well, what size of outbreak might you be looking at? And then what's the chances it's, it's, it's gone to other parts of the country? So you're doing that modelling work, that modelling work cranked up again 
last night. Is there yep. any anything useful early at this stage, or just too soon? Yeah, I mean, we can say we can say a few things. I mean, you know, we we, we there's, there's different different layers of complexity that we can apply to the modelling. You know, obviously, we did some, you know, kind of the quickest thing we could do last night, and that was that was telling us that that them, you know, there was the possibility of a couple of dozen cases out there, right? As people can imagine, because we don't know how the disease is spread to this particular family. You know, there, there have been, there obviously have been other um, chains of transmission. So, what's the size of that? So, we might be looking at a couple of dozen cases in the Auckland region, and then, you know, I think we found out today that there was travel to, to Rotorua, mm. and um, and we were estimating the, the chances of that occurring last night, and we thought we thought it was reason there was a reasonably high chance that actually it had moved within the North Island. Uh, a lower chance that 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 someone might have moved to the to the South Island, yeah. And then you know, so the next step is then just as more we get more information and we have slightly more time to run more detailed models. Our very our very quick model doesn't really build in a lot of data information about suburbs, for example. But the the we do have models now that that actually you know go down right down to household. Level and so you know they require a lot of supercomputing <laughs> capacity. Mm. So so luckily I I don't live too far from um, the guy Nick Jones that that looks after the national supercomputing centre called Nessie, um, and uh, and so every time I bump into Nick I say you you guys ready <laughs> you guys ready to go and he's like yep and so actually so they were ready to go so some some of our big models have been have been going overnight and we'll continue to run those and try and get a handle as more information comes in about well, what, what scale of outbreak are we looking at. Just to be geeky, can you give us a metric of supercomputing, you know, petaflops or gigablobs or whatever they are? The, the, the types of um, processes we use, they, they tend to have a lot of, a lot of memory um, so we can fit the whole whole of New Zealand <laughs> into one right. node, if you can imagine, and and then we use um, hundreds or thousands of them, right? So that and the, and and on each one, there's kind of a little mini um, pretend New Zealand. It's not the actual New Zealand. Um, uh, uh, we don't actually know where everybody lives. We we just have a, a, a something that mimics New Zealand, and then we'll be running sort of a thousand. Um, also different versions of, of an epidemic to try and figure out well, what's the most likely epidemic that we're looking at that would have produced what we've seen. Right. So when we spoke to you in June, it was about precisely what's just happened, the the risks of a return to community transmission. And in fact, first things first, we also spoke to you about the risks of a second wave. So just to get our terminology right, what's happening right now, can we call this the second wave? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think so. I mean, things, um, I don't think there's a precise definition for, for second mm. wave. I know there's been a lot of discussion over in the US about whether they're having a second wave or whether they just, they actually never got rid of their first wave. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is complicated, you know, over in the US by the fact that, of course, it, it moves around geographically. We're absolutely sure or very, very sure that we eliminated the virus from from the community in New Zealand. Mm. We'll have some genomic data soon. So the um, you know, so when people get the the swab test, that swab test will contain RNA from the virus. That'll be sent off 
to be sequenced. So, so they'll basically build the, the full RNA sequence of the virus. And then we have clever people around the country who can tell, who can relate that to other virus samples. So they'll be able to link that and say, well, actually this came from a traveler, for example, who was in California or who has returned from Melbourne. And so we'll get a handle on that. And, and that'll confirm what we, what we suspect is that it's somehow come through our, our border facilities. It may even tell us the particular traveler wow. where the link has been established. Sure. So look, people are saying that the big issue here is that there's no known link to international travel or to the border. So can you just almost go back to basics and step us through the logic of that? Why is it so bad that we can't connect this family's infection to international travel or the border? The problem is um, it's the, the, the later that you detect, so, so let's imagine, you know, it, it has come through the border, right? And then it's been passed at least, through at least two or three chains to reach this family. And each time it passes through, through one chain, you know, it makes it harder for us to trace it, but also the epidemic grows over time. And so the fact that we've found it first in a family where there's no immediate obvious connection to the border tells us that that actually the, the, the epidemic is probably larger than it would be, say, if we'd found it in someone who was working in, in, in the border. So the, the kind of the later you detect it, the larger the epidemic that, that you're potentially looking at. Right, okay. When we think back to that interview in June, you talked about the risks. You were talking about the border. Maybe it's an airport worker who gets infected. It doesn't have symptoms they're aware of, takes it home. So is that the sort of thing that we think has happened here? and Or are there other scenarios? That's certainly a, a, a possible scenario. And of course, you know, the airport is in South Auckland. And a lot of people in South Auckland, you know, either work there or have contact with people who work there. Um, so that's certainly a, a, a likely scenario. We also have some managed isolation facilities that are in South Auckland around the airport. And so it could be a worker uh, at one of those managed isolation facilities as well. That's the kind of thing that we, you know, we relatively, we'd be relatively sure that, that that's what's gone on and that we'll be hoping to establish via contact tracing. If we can establish it via the contact tracing, then we can also isolate those other people that are potentially infected. And that'll be the key to avoiding a long lockdown, right? I know, I know people would like to know right now how long huh. the lockdown might be. I would love to know that too. And it will just come down to whether we can confidently isolate everybody in that chain of transmission. And, yeah. and so that's where contact t- tracing is key. Yeah, well, contact tracing is all about finding information out about people and who they've been interacting with. But also privacy concerns means we're not, we the public are not being told exactly, you know, which workplaces are affected, where this particular family lives, where they went in Rotorua um, and, you know, for a little while until it was figured out by other people, which school the, the, the children associated with the family had gone to. So no one wants to condemn, victimize the family, obviously, privacy really matters. But is there an argument to say, look, just tell us everything you know, Dr. Bloomfield. Literally, where did they go? On what day? Yes, there's a privacy problem, but that means that we can sort of do backwards contact tracing. We can say, oh, oh yeah, I was in, I was in Rotorua, I was in that shop, and you know, that simplifies yeah. the process. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's, I mean, there are, there are privacy concerns, and, and the risk, you know, 
simply around the privacy, you do always have to balance privacy because um, you want people to come forward. <laughs> and and if you don't respect people's um, privacy, then they're, they're less likely to come forward. So they have to know that 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 you're going to be trusted when you when they approach you and, and start sharing their details. So that's that's a really important thing. I and mean, the other thing is, you know, sometimes the information, you know, there is um, there's entropy involved, right? There, there's there's you know there'll, there'll be there'll be mistakes, and it'll take time sometimes to clear up those mistakes. So if you if you put that first that first wave of information out, quite often there'll be there'll be mistakes in it, right? And 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 so that just takes time to correct. And then I think the other thing is is you know you do want to, and this is frustrating because we you know we all would like to know, but of course the, the the there's a big risk that we simply overwhelm the system if we put out mm. blanket um, announcements about potential risks. We have to allow the system to move at the speed that's right for us. If we all turn out for a test today in Auckland, they you know then then people who really need that test, people who are symptomatic or people who have been close contacts with members of that family or for in you know isolation facilities won't get those tests. So it's really, you know, we do need to, as frustrating as it might be, we do need to sit back and let the system work at the pace at which it can work. Mm. So speaking about the system, we've had 102 days or we had 102 days where there's no community transmission, a lot of time to prepare. Were we New Zealand ready? Has the government done enough to prepare for this moment, do you think? Yeah, look, that's really hard to, to answer. You know, I, I don't think we'll know that until you know until we're a couple of weeks in to, to this particular um, outbreak uh, you know I mean there's certainly been things that, that are visible to me that have have improved you know we, we are seeing compared to where we were in March April we do have better exchange of information and so the information that we get as a modeling team for example is is, is better um, so that's that that's great you know we there's obviously been has been scaling up of contact tracing and the way that the contact tracers are sharing data now is much more effective and efficient. So that that ought to have, be making a, a, a big difference. So we will have to see. I think one thing we can say that's worked pretty well in New Zealand is our testing. And so that that's, that's a great thing. You know, we've had great testing capacity. We haven't suffered from the problems they've had in the US where testing has been woeful and, you know, you can mm. you can wait for, for a, you know, over a week to get your result back, which is, a, you might as, not, might as well not have got a test yeah. um, if you're having to wait that long. So, I, you know, look, we've, I, I think we're as well prepared as anyone at the moment, whether it's enough, you know, let's, let's all keep our fingers crossed that we've used that time wisely. It has been a big advantage to us to be not firefighting during the those, those few months, right? We've got it. We've got a health system that is actually, it, it, it's relatively, uh, it hasn't been under stress, right? In the way that health systems overseas have been in those in those few months, and so I think it's as, you know, that should hold us in good stead as well. The other thing that's changed since March, of course, is that we're right in the middle of an election campaign. Yeah. What do you, what do you reckon? <laughs> should the campaign carry on? But the dissolution of parliament has been pushed back a few days and obviously some decisions are made, but what would you be advising? Oh gosh, that's, <laughs> that's really above my pay grade <laughs> as, uh, a, as a physicist. Yeah. Um, it's, re- it's really difficult. I, I, and I and I do feel for the politicians that are sort of stuck in the middle of this, and and people who are helping them campaign and just gearing up, and then suddenly having the game changed again. So I can sort of understand the the frustration that many politicians might might have. Look, we are a democracy. It's important for us to work out 
how to do this. We do have to hold elections this year and let's just hope that we get on top of, of things quickly and so we can have a little bit more certainty mm. um, as we as we head into that election period. You know, one general reflection I can I can make, this is something, you know, I've been hoping we would have had time to, to work on a little bit before we found ourselves in the situation again is how, how to get good science advice to the opposition. Right. We haven't really got good mechanisms for, for doing that at the moment. You know, the Prime Minister has her chief science advisor and I think that really works really effectively but there aren't good mechanisms for getting science advice to Judith Collins, the leader of the opposition at, at the moment and so that's something I think we need to, we need to look at um, once, hmm. once we're out of this crisis, yeah. Do you think we need to come up with a way of getting science information to the opposition in a kind of a fair yeah. way. I mean, I think that I think the select committee actually, you know, you, you remember the select committee yes. that ran uh, back in March and April. That that was actually not a bad way of of getting some of it. I mean, particularly since it was being shared publicly. I'm a big fan of doing as much getting as much of the science advice out publicly as possible. You know, you can't always do that because, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you know, there's confidential information that's being shared with you, so you can't put everything out there. We try and do our best to make our make the stuff that we're doing uh, publicly available as soon as we reasonably can. And I do I, I do think that select committee was, was something that worked reasonably well, mm. uh, you know, got a little bit of, of the science exposed to the wider public um, and gave the opposition a chance to sort of engage in conversation with a range of scientists. Sean, we'd better let you get back to your supercomputers and, and, and your team, but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problems. That's the Tick Tick Meets Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday the 12th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Sean Hendy, Luke Melpass, Patrick Coots and John Hatterfeld and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. What's the other one? Virus pod. You can probably also still get us on viruspod at stuff.co.nz, by the way. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back oh, sometime later this week. Hekonera.